so we're here in April and it's glorious. It's like the summer. It's absolutely beautiful. And it is the last in the series of series two, which is a slightly shorter series with my special guest co-hosts. But more about that a little bit later on. Series three is on its way. You don't have to wait any longer, Poppets. Uh, but this month, my guest co-host is... I'm not really even sure how, I mean, I, I guess I don't need to bow when I say this, but is, <laughs> is Professor Dave Galson. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Jez. Pleasure to be here. Do, do I have to call you Professor Galson or Prof? Or? No, no, I think we can go with Dave. Oh, we're okay with Dave. <laughs> I was going to maybe try and find some other, some other title. So what does a professor of, well, we should explain, right? So you are according to what I've read, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say it's accurate or true. <laughs> Depends where you read it, right? <laughs> I dread to think. <laughs> a professor of ecology, specialising in the conservation of insects, but particularly bumblebees. So what does what does a, a professor of ecology do? Oh, well, I... Uh, <laughs> be I, careful, your employer I, might I, be listening. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, I should bear that in mind, although... I, <laughs> Um, I, I, I study the, I do experiments, I collect data, I supervise PhD students, I basically try and kind of unravel the, the details of the behaviour, the ecology of different types of insect, particularly bumblebees. Um, and, and I'm quite focused on kind of practical issues, like why are they declining, what's driving it, and what can we do about it, so we make sure there's plenty more uh, insects around in the future and they don't all disappear which is uh, something of a concern at the moment and so where does that start I mean how does one become a end up as a professor of well bumblebee doctor a bumblebee professor I don't know I mean how does, how, where did it start was it a childhood fascination with insects is it sort yeah, of exactly that? that. I, 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 lots of people have a kind of you know a bug phase when they're when they're little and sure I I I I did I and I never grew out of it really um, <laughs> Uh, five or six I used to, you know in the early years at primary school I used to spend my lunch times looking for caterpillars in the hedge and along the edge of the playground and stuff and taking them home in my lunchbox and trying to rear them up and you know see what they turned into I don't know where it comes from but if lots of kids my own kids I, I've seen the same kind of thing um but but sadly from to from my perspective, you know, many people do kind of grow out of it. You know, they're they're completely fascinated by nature and by little creatures they can keep sure. in when they're little. But by the time they're teenagers, you know, anything flies by and bang, they first react <laughs> to squash it. You know, which is kind of sad. So, um, so I, I spend my life trying to persuade people to 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 love insects, which uh, is a bit of a challenge. But um, so to, so you you start by going to you need to study ecology, do you? And then you just literally I don't want to kind of you know use a terrible pun, but you kind of got bitten by the bug and stayed doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, so exactly that. I did a biology degree because uh, I couldn't think what else to do, and I hadn't got sure what I was going to do with it. Or you know I didn't like when you see a careers officer when you're at school. You know they they I said I said well I'm really into kind of animals and insects and things and he said well why don't you why don't you be a vet yeah. <laughs> kind of the obvious sort of mainstream career if you like animals but I didn't really want to be a vet you know sure. so I but I didn't know what else I didn't realize you could make a living from chasing around after bees and butterflies <laughs> <laughs> well, can you anyway so I, I I I did a degree and then I 
didn't know what to do. So I did a PhD on butterfly ecology. And then after that, I, I got a short term research job doing look actually studying the the mating behavior of death watch beetles which i could bore you at length about if you really wanted to know they wow. actually um, <laughs> they bang they call to each other by headbutting the timber with with their foreheads and uh, you get these little duets between male and female anyway wow. that's that's another story um and then i did i did another couple of short-term kind of research jobs in universities and eventually got a permanent position where I could be my own boss and decide what I was going to study and that that's that's been what I've been doing ever since really. Wow that's a that's a real academic sweet spot that isn't it that's a really nice position to end up in. Um, so yeah. I, I want to go back to these beetles a second um, so <laughs> when they're banging their foreheads on the logs is that is that males to attract a female, like a rutting behaviour, like slough on a Saturday night? Or is it is it the male and female that are calling to each other using the vibration? So, so what happens is that they're almost blind and fairly, fairly stupid creatures as far as I can, certainly compared to bumblebees. Right. Like that, but, um, <clears throat> so they emerge from, they, they, they live for about 10 years as a little grub burrowing in timber. Wow. So, long-lived insects and after 10 years of feeding and growing they're maybe about eight millimeters long so you know it's oh. a slow life cycle and then finally in the spring they'll they turn into this little sort of bullet-shaped beetle and um the the males wander around on the on the timber and naturally it would be on dead trees or whatever outside and every every few centimeters they pause and they stop and they sort of brace themselves and then they bang their head about six times so you can kind of I don't know if you'll hear this but it's sort of you hear this little drumming which which is where they get their name from um so sorry you, you did ask just tell me to shut up when you're bored oh, I'm loving this so so um in years gone by when people used to die at home uh, if someone was on their deathbed everyone would be quiet out of respect in the house yes. And it was called the Death Watch. And it was only when everyone was being really quiet that they'd imagine it's an old timber framed house. They'd hear yes. the drumming noise coming from the walls of the house. And legend huh. had it's the, it's the devil drumming his fingers impatiently, waiting for the soul to leave the body. So anyway, that's where they get their name. But it's actually the, the, the mating cry of this little beetle. Um, so the male wanders about banging his head. And the females, if it's a virgin female looking for a mate, she stays still, but she replies. So she never bangs her head voluntarily, yeah. uh, spontaneously. But if she hears a male, she immediately answers. So you get this little duet. And the first half is the male and the second half is the female. Wow. And he gets really excited and he runs around, stopping every now and again to bang his head and get a reply, trying to work out where she is. But given that he's blind, it still often takes them ages to find the, the, the female because they... <laughs> They can't get, sorry, <laughs> this is what I was actually employed to work out, was how do they find the female? Because they can't get directionality. You, we can tell where a sound is coming from because our ears are far enough apart and pointing cool. in different directions that you get a sense of, direct, of this direction of the origin of a sound. But if you yes. actually hear through their feet, and their feet are very close together because they're tiny, so they can't tell where the sound, all they frustratingly all the male beetle can tell is that somewhere nearby is a virgin female that's interested but he doesn't know where she is so he runs about and essentially what he does is if if 
between replies, the female has got louder, he tends to carry on in the same direction because he's going the right way. And if she gets yeah. closer, he turns around and goes back the way he came. So it's pretty rough and ready. But usually, eventually, he finds the female and then he wow. jumps on her back and uh, attempts Amazing. To... Sometimes after all of that, she refuses anyway, but... Uh, oh, that's life, though, isn't it? It is indeed. How on earth do you begin to ascertain how a beetle hears annoy i mean how what leads you to that how do you even start that well so i'm imagining this beetle dave hooked up with loads of little probes and wires coming out of it like you're trying to work out where it is that that's sensing we we didn't do anything that exciting so what we did do was we made a a a fake beetle a fake female which was just a a, a rigged up this little gadget that could tap and make a, a a sort of noise a bit like a female i was in control of so i was the female beetle and we put that in the middle of a big uh, sheet of wood uh, and then we'd release a male at the edge and we'd film it from above so so every time he all of his movements could be recorded and then transferred onto a computer and and after hours and hours of, of recording hundreds of beetles we collected them from churches actually that's because the the Death Watch beetle itself has become quite rare um, because the, the, we don't tend, well, we, if they're in a building, they tend to get sprayed with insecticide and, right. and, and killed. And naturally, we don't tend to leave big trees rotting in the landscape. They tend to get tidied away, chopped up for firewood or whatever. So the home of the natural home is gone. But there are in, I was based at Oxford, and um, there are a few old churches that had infested roofs. Um, so we, and they, they hatch in May, June, and it, because it's quite cold in churches, they often fall off the beams. So we, we would go to this church once a week and just sweep the floor. Um, and then you'd, you'd find amongst the dust and dust bunnies and all the rest of it, there'd be a selection of, of these little beetles that had dropped. Wow, literally a gift from God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we basically analysed their walking patterns um, and and... It became clear that they, from a single call from the female, the males had no idea where she was. They they would they would go off in completely the wrong direction as often as they went in the right direction. Sure, weren't able to detect any direction from one call, but it was by listening from different places that they began to kind of work out whether they were going the right way or the wrong way. Wow, that yeah. is amazing. It is not that is the last thing I thought we would discuss. <laughs> And this early on. <laughs> you might well wonder why anyone should care or what the point was. And, and I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. But it's it's kind of a nice <laughs> about science is you can you can do things just sometimes just for the well, so here, here's a question that could be uh, considered patronizing and offensive, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um some people might say, you know, what's the point? What why are you funding, you know, what why why is somebody funding to find out how you know this beetle that is quite rare? finds its mate what's the so from a and, and that's a very broad question and it's not a very specific academic question either but but taking the question on face value and when people start to think about you know why does that research happen and why are we bothering looking at insects you know why does your job even exist like what does it matter um so what what is the sort of response you know generally that you would give to why is it important that you know somebody like you has a job that you have and and looks at these insects. I mean, there's there's kind of a whole bunch of different ways of answering that. I mean, in the case of the Death Watch beetle, it, it it's unlikely 
that that research is going to result in any great benefit for mankind directly. But I think you can justify the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, out of curiosity. You know, what's the point of any of us being here at all if we're not able to to discover interesting things? You know. Sure. Um, but of course, in the, the bigger picture as well is that um, sometimes scientific research does produce really valuable results. So and the classic example people give is, you know, the early people who played around with electricity. Everyone sort of thought it was just this kind of quaint little hobby and had no yeah. interest. But, you know, clearly, as it turned out, it was quite useful. Um, sure. and, and insects are are actually broadly um, incredibly important creatures. They do all sorts of stuff that we couldn't do without. And we don't, we don't usually give them credit for it or sort of really appreciate them. But uh, um, so understanding what's happening with our insects and uh, why they're declining, which is my sort of main focus these days, is very easy to justify because we, we, we need to stop these declines. Well, the declining thing is interesting, isn't it? Because I was talking to somebody maybe last year, I think I'd driven home quite a long car journey and it was a beautiful summer's day summer's evening by the time I got home and as I got out the car I noticed um I think a bit of bird poo on the windscreen or something like that and as I went to clean it off I thought hey now hang on a minute when I first started driving I remember in the summer like the windscreen being covered in dead bugs and stuff when you were driving around because you I remember my dad buying me like this sponge to clean the car with and on one side was specifically like a quote unquote bug scraper or something it was like a scouring pad that was okay for cars or something for dead bugs and i was talking to this person whoever it was maybe somebody here visiting or something and they said that uh, this was a few weeks later there'd been something on the news or in the paper about that very thing about somebody more publicly saying hang on a minute where have all the bugs gone So I suppose there's a correlation, you know, somebody might look at some of the research you're doing in isolation and say, well, why on earth does somebody need to be, you know, researching bugs or something? But, and I guess I'm sort of probing to where this could go, but um, broadly, your um, data that says we have a decline in these number of bugs or species or whatever, and then there's some sort of evidential anecdotal evidence because it's, you know, not really scientific, you know, but there are less bugs on windscreens, points you in a certain direction, doesn't it? Which is, so where are they going and why are they declining? And is that environmental? Is it, you know, agricultural, whatever, whatever? So I suppose you could say that um, we without people like you we wouldn't necessarily consciously or academically be aware of the situation because we all adapt don't we you just get on with it you know it's not like I for the last 10 years have been thinking where are all the bugs on my windscreens you know I just sort of suddenly stopped noticing them yeah it's really interesting that people pay so little attention to insects that that they would never have noticed their disappearance were it not for this one one phenomenon which kind of chimes with everybody you speak to is over the age of yeah, it's hard to say exactly what when it happened, but <laughs> when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, there were plentiful insects still. So that would be, you know, up until the eight summer. I think it's sort of from the 80s onwards they disappeared. Um, right. When is hard to pinpoint because memories are kind of slightly, slightly woolly things. Um, sure. But certainly, you know, lots of people can remember a time when when you literally had to stop because you couldn't see where you were going. Yes. Um, and that definitely doesn't happen anymore. But yeah. you say no one would have really 
done anything about that or cared if that was the only evidence that insects had disappeared. But it tallies really well with with the sort of better properly gathered scientific data that we have, which which is still very patchy. Um, most there is no kind of monitoring scheme for many types of insects. Um, right. But there is for butterflies, and there was a big German study over 26 years that ran these big kind of flying insect traps all over Germany and found a 76% decline in the in the weight of flying insects. In 26 years? 26 years. Wow. I mean, that like a 76% decline or, I mean, that's almost evolutionary. I mean, that's... It, it, it's really, I mean, when that, so that paper was published in 2017 and, and it got newspaper coverage around the world and really made people think well hang on you know this is this isn't just a sort of gradual gentle thing over over huge time scales yes. and so there's been a lot of debate about you know was that is there something weird happening in germany well no the answer seems to be that this is a at least general across europe and north america and uh, probably elsewhere too but we don't we don't really have the data for most places out beyond that well, listen, this, I'm going to pause us there right? because I'm going to come to this and I want to talk about this in more detail. But I sort of feel like there's a piece of the puzzle missing because we've talked about butterflies. You've mentioned insects broadly and the death watch beetle. That was fascinating. Um, but why bumblebees? I mean, there are what, thousands of insects, hundreds of thousands of insects. Yeah, uh, millions. Uh, so we've we've so far named one and a half million species of animal and plant of which 1.1 million are different types of insects so they're one thirds of all life on earth is is some kind of insect um but of those i mean bumblebees i actually got hooked on studying them because i it was sort of accidental observation so um as we were saying earlier I, I ended up with a i got a lectureship an academic post at southampton university and it was actually, although it was kind of really exciting to suddenly be free to do, to study whatever I kind of wanted. Uh, it's also quite daunting. And I was, I was a little bit lost to start with, in, you know, yeah. looking at inspiration. What exactly, when someone else is telling you what to do, it's, it's kind of easy, but suddenly you have to come up with your own ideas. Anyway, I, by one, one spring morning, I was sitting in a, in a little nature reserve and just idly watching some bees. And it was a patch of comfrey flowers. And I noticed that the bees, because they fly from flower to flower, as bees sure. do. But actually, well, I noticed something odd, or it seemed odd to me, which was that um, very often a bee flies up to a flower, um, but she doesn't land. She doesn't touch it. Just She gets very close, but at the last second, it's as if there's something wrong with it. She, she veers off. And you'll sometimes see them do that two or three times before they find a flower that they find acceptable and land and drink the nectar and collect the pollen and I thought you know what's wrong with the flowers she's not landing on um and and I, I did a bit of reading and I couldn't find any kind of obvious explanation in in the kind of scientific literature so I I set about working out what was going on I, luckily I, I got a bit of money for a PhD student so I had a girl called Jane Stout who's now a professor in uh, Trinity College in Ireland but uh, anyway between we spent five years trying to work out what was going on um, and to cut a long story short what the bees do is they 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 sniff the flower as they approach it and what they're sniffing for is is the faint smelly footprint of a previous bee having landed recently on the flower 
there, if somebody else has been there in the last hour or two, there's no point in landing because the previous bee will have taken all the nectar. Wow. And quick sniff. And if they smell another bee, they just scoot on. It's Conservation of energy. Half a second or something. But, but a bee might visit 10,000 flowers a day. So, you know, it actually is quite a significant sort of uh, efficiency saving that they gain. We hear a lot of things like that, you know, the bees visit 10,000 flowers a day or whatever, but who counted that? Are they, I mean, are these numbers that people just make up or are they actually? <laughs> people actually count, count this stuff. Oh, yeah. Wow. We, we've, I mean, we've done it. You, you, you obviously can't literally follow an individual bee for the entire day because they fly far too fast to, to keep up with. Um, but if you if you record how many flowers there's lots of ways of doing it actually you can record how many flowers a bee visits in a minute and then work out how many hours the bee spends foraging in a day and it's pretty easy to to tot up how many flowers they probably visit you can also look at it a different way which is you can look at how much nectar they bring back to the nest and you can measure how much nectar there is in a flower and obviously then you know how many flowers they must have visited to bring back so many milligrams of nectar or whatever so can you imagine finding that data and somebody working it all out, processing all the numbers and saying, well, there you go, sir. It's 10,000 flowers. I mean, everybody, that can't be right. You must have done that wrong. We're going to have to do it all over again or something. I can't have. It must be amazing to realise that that was accurate or broadly accurate. Just the sheer, the sheer magnitude of that, you know, of that productivity and the, and the expense of energy and behaviour in order to just simply survive is remarkable isn't it bees are really unusual actually because they are very single-minded in in their what they do um and it's because of this weird social lifestyle that they have you know most most insects you think of say a butterfly um it has to do lots of different things it has to find some nectar to fuel its flight but then it might have to find a mate or uh, find somewhere to lay its eggs and it needs to avoid being eaten by predators and so on so they they they're kind of multitasking whereas whereas a, a worker a foraging worker bee just has one job she's doesn't she's she's sterile she's never going to have babies she doesn't care about anything apart from gathering as much food as she can as fast yeah. as she can and so so you know they are i mean i guess that's why they're sort of um you know a, a parable for kind of uh, hard work you know yeah. Yeah. busy as a bee um uh and each individual bee specializes in a different job, even to the extent where individual foragers specialize on a, on a particular flower species. So each individual bee will tend to visit the same flower species over and over again and ignore everything else in the landscape. Uh, but one of her sisters might be visiting a different flower in the same meadow. Um, and then other bees specialize in looking after the babies in the nest and fanning it to keep it cool and cool. looking to the queen and whatever job needs doing there it's all carved up between it's very like a human society you know where we might have carpenters and you know butchers and whatever builders so it's the same with bees and ants and other social insects the different thing with insects is they're never late uh, <laughs> and, they, and they get the job done <laughs> Um, yeah, fair point. So what about gardens? Let's talk real quickly about that, because there's an awful lot of people that listen that have gardens or aspire to have a garden or just really love being in gardens. You know, they might. I know we have lots of listeners literally all over the world who, because they email me and they tell me that they don't, they've uh, 
a balcony or they don't have a garden yet, but they'd like to have one or they've got a friend that's got a garden, they spend time in it or whatever. So, and of course, in the UK, we have the National Trust as well. And there are variations of that around the world. So um, do you have a garden? Are you a keen gardener? I, I'm a very keen gardener, obsessively so almost. I've got a um, couple of acres, uh, which is fantastic. I love it. Um, it's a sort of wild garden and orchard, um, a bee-friendly garden, a wildlife-friendly garden. I'm, I'm just trying to get as much life in it as I possibly can. There's not a lawnmower in sight. Well, I, I do a lot of sort of campaigning to reduce mowing. Yeah, I do, I do have a mower. You have to yeah. you have to mow occasionally. Yeah. Uh, at least once a year anyway, or else your lawn will eventually turn into a forest, give it yeah. time. Um, which is not a bad thing, but probably not what everyone wants. Um, sure. No, I, I mean, I, I, I'm very kind of excited about there's, there's this growing movement of people who are trying to kind of make their gardens a little wilder, a bit more wildlife friendly. Um, yeah. And I think there's this there's huge potential, you know, it's 22, roughly 22 million gardens in the UK. Um, covers an area of about 400,000 hectares, which is a bigger area than than all the nature reserves in Britain. Sure, sure. Um, and, and, you know, just imagine if, like, if most of those were full of insect-friendly, bee-friendly flowers and pesticide-free with a little pond and some flowering trees and a, a wildflower meadow instead of a lawn and so on. Um, and if you could, if we could persuade the local councils to stop mowing the hell out of everything and instead allow, allow or even yeah. wildflowers in the round, roundabouts and the road verges and yeah. patches of them in parks and so on, it'd be brilliant. You've got this sort of national network of, you know, nature-friendly, insect-friendly habitat. That's why I write these books. You see, that's <laughs> this one, Gardening for Bumblebees. That's uh, the latest book, isn't it, yours? Yeah, yeah, it came out two weeks ago. Oh, um, it's really new, Gardening for yeah. Bumblebees. It's, it's not just about bumblebees, to be fair. I just uh, It's about all pollinators and really yeah. about all insects. It's really exciting. And it's, it's nice because so many environmental issues are doom and gloom. You know, people feel, gosh, you know, all this depressing stuff, climate change and the rainforest being burned down in Brazil and all this stuff that you feel you can't really do much about. Um, but if you've got any kind of outside space, even a window box, you know, you can do something. It might not be big, but... You know, a few a few herbs with a marjoram and thyme and sage yep. in a window box. You'll see some happy bees coming and foraging, and at least you're doing something to yeah. help. Well, and, and your point is right. You know, if you multiply it out, if you think of how many high-rise flats there are or apartments without gardens, but they have windows, if even 1% of those added a window box with bee-friendly things in, you've multiplied that out. That's a significant increase in, in forage, right? Yeah, and and if you if you're a don't have access to a garden there are other things you can do too um so i i used to work up in um Stir sterling university up in scotland and there's this little uh local group of of campaigners they call themselves on the verge and a lot of them are people who haven't got their own garden but i know how they feel <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, uh they got together and basically they spend their weekends planting, digging over any bit of sort of mown grass that they can get permission to dig over, mainly from the council, but other organisations too, sowing it all with wildflowers. So there's hundreds, well, hundreds, 93 patches of flowers now on roundabouts and road verges and one next to a rugby pitch and one in a primary school field and what is even one in a prison um, all, all around. So you drive around Stirling in the summer and there's flat, patches of flowers everywhere. It's fantastic. Um, and that's just this little 
group of a, a dozen or so keen um, sort of wannabe gardeners who were or frustrated gardeners. Um, so there's all sorts of things people can do. Reminds me because I, I must do something. I live in Lincolnshire, which is you know the agricultural centre of the UK. In as much as that, <clears throat> after the war, everything was or before the no after the war, all of the fields were the hedges were removed to maximise the crop yield, and dikes were dug. and um, And I live on a, a road that's approximately a mile long, in the middle of like three hundred acres of arable land. There is literally nobody here, right? It is a it's an access road. It isn't even a B road. Um, and there are one, two, three, four, six houses, I think, uh, from end to end on this mile long stretch. And there are grass verges either side. It's not even a proper road. It doesn't have curbs. Um, the council, quote unquote, repair uh, <laughs> the road at least twice a year. <laughs> um, and three or four times a year, they come and cut all of the verge. They did it just the other day. I couldn't believe it when I was watching yeah. it. And on that uh, patch of road, uh, on the verges, a few weeks ago, because I used to walk the dog up and down it, I, I counted um, four different variety of um, uh, of poppies, uh, wild poppies. Um, and there's vetch and there's, um, I mean, a myriad wild flowers mm. all over mm. it and grasses and stuff. And, and they just come and, mo- and there's no reason. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's so stupid. I, I, it drives me nuts. And the other thing you see in some areas is is everything dead and yellow where they've sprayed it with herbicide, which is yeah. ridiculous if you ask yeah, me. Yeah. You know, why, do, why does the local council pay? They, you know, they're all short of funds and yet yeah. they're still sending out teams of people to needlessly mow flowers to the ground it's sure yeah it it absolutely is and it won't be cheap of course because it's a council contract and we all know that you know as soon as it's uh, anything to do with the the civil service people jack their prices up but um so listen i know the answer is going to be buy my book gardening for bumblebees right i know that's going to be the answer but i'm going to try and squeeze as best i can the investigative journalist in me (laughs) is going to squeeze some freebies out for my listeners all right so what are your favourite plants for bees, Dave Coulson? See how I did that? I've turned it around. I'm not asking for information. I'm asking you for your opinion. <laughs> That's uh, th- There are loads of beautiful flowers to choose from that bees absolutely love. Um, so... Uh, for writing top... a book about them, what sort of, you know, um, what ones would you put in it? <laughs> well, so old-fashioned kind of cottage garden flowers tend to be really good. Cat mint is fantastic. Uh, lavender is pretty good. Um, comfrey is a real favourite of mine. Um, makes a great liquid compost as well. Liquid manure. Yeah. Um, uh, Does spread though. You have to be a bit careful. You have to you have to know what you're getting into with comfrey, don't you? You have to know that if you don't want it, you might have to weed it. So if you happen to be near where I live, I'll give you some roots of. Um, there's a variety called Bocking 14. I've no idea why it's called Bocking 14. Or okay. Who's what bocking was but anyway it's a it's a sterile variety so it doesn't seed oh uh, just stays where you plant it and, and that's great brilliant. um anyway uh yeah marjoram is absolutely brilliant um there are loads and loads of really nice flowers if you can squeeze in some native wildflowers that's even better because they tend to be good for pollinators but they are also food for um caterpillars so I've got at the moment, I've got a load of ladies smock growing in my garden, which is flowering, lovely little pink flowers at this time of year. But it's oh. the it's the food plant of the orange tip butterfly as well. So 
they lay their eggs on it and you get these lovely little caterpillars eating the leaves later in the year and uh, oh. so yeah there's 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 loads of choice out there um uh, and i mean actually one of the simplest ways to 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 find out what's good for bees is if you go to a garden center and you're not sure what to buy if it's a reasonably sunny day just stand still and just look because the bees will be there in the garden center visiting the flowers that they like sort of telling you which ones they sure. you know, want you to buy um, I did that exact same thing in, uh, I didn't look and I didn't, that's a great piece of advice for everybody, but I found that out accidentally. I was visiting a garden, uh, uh, a National Trust property, in a little garden centre in their shop. And I thought, well, I'll see if there's anything there. And there was this um, uh, white variety of a globe thistle. And it was, I mean, there were about five bees on each head of the flower of these thistles. And that's why I bought it. I was like, wow, well, they love that. I'm going to take that home. <laughs> Globe thistle is another one for this. There's a very long list in my book and easily found ones online. The RHS publisher, uh, a nice list of bee-friendly plants as well. So uh, there's no shortage of advice out there. Avoid double varieties. They tend to be absolutely useless there. So lots of flowers, ornamentals are sold as these kind of extra, they have extra petals. When they're usually um, mutants, that where the, the anthers, the male bits of the flower that, that normally would produce the pollen are mutated into petals instead. And plant breeders thought, oh, that's cool. And, you know, thought people would like all these extra petals. But obviously, if there's no pollen, that's not good for bees. Sure. Usually all the petals mean the bees can't get into the flower to find if there's any nectar either. So, so some of the cultivated plant varieties that are available are hopeless for bees. So That's okay. interesting. I've, I heard recently on, on television uh, somebody uh, telling viewers not to buy the sort of ruffly roses, the, you know, the double head roses, because they weren't any good for bees. And I have to say my criteria, so I have a big uh, sort of rose garden with a, with a path through it. And my criteria was to only buy roses that were the highest scented roses. So I went through the catalogues, found the ones with the highest scent, so that when you walked through it, it was extremely aromatic. Yeah, lovely. Of course, the reason it's aromatic is high uh, nectar content, right? Uh, the high flow of nectar that increases the scent of the plant. Is that correct? It's not always true. There are high-scented flowers that don't have lots of nectar. Um, it does correlate. And this, obviously the, the scent is there to, to sure. attract those pollinators. So you, you probably find that your roses are pretty good. Um, well, what I've found is that even the double-headed ones, the, you can see the bees making their way into it, which was interesting because they... You know, obviously, if the attraction is there, I guess because of the smell, I am guessing, I don't know, then then they're yeah, willing to yeah. kind of have a little rummage around and find what they need to find. If 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 they can fight their way in, they will. I mean, they're they're pretty determined and clever little creatures, and they they learn how to locate the rewards in in any yes. particular shape of flower if they're given enough time. So so yeah, they will fight their way in, but it's much easier if you if you plant. It's kind of single varieties of roses or the ones that are more open when they flower sure. it's really easy for the bees to go bang straight for the, the heart of the flower i think i just maybe i'm a bit tough on them i just didn't like the idea of having lazy bees i thought well you know if you're going to work for it then i will reward you mightily <laughs> i would like <laughs> um so so listen dave what i wanted to ask you slightly controversial the thing about headlines in the news is that generally and um, the unfortunate thing with social media is that there are many wonderful things about social media. It's given a voice 
to many people who didn't have a voice before. It's given an opportunity for us to interact and connect and share and, and socialize, um, uh, which and all of those things are, are genuinely wonderful. One of the many uh, aspects of social media, which is terrible, I think there are probably many things that are worse about it than there are beneficial to our uh, species for sure, um, is that it provides a platform for people to have opinions of, about things that they know nothing about. And so we get headlines in the news, people talk about it, declare they're, a, you know, suddenly they're an expert in <laughs> the latest thing that they don't agree on or do agree on or whatever. So here's my slightly loaded question. We hear all the time about there's a decline in bee population. That divides everybody. As soon as you say, or certainly in the bee world, as soon as you mention the decline word, that's it. There's people saying, no, they're not. Here's evidence to suggest that there's more bees. And then, of course, there's the honeybee rift. If you're listening and you might not know, unless you're in the insect world or the bee world, there's sort of like a pro-honeybee and an anti-honeybee camp where some people don't like honeybees because it robs all the other insects of their food. And some of them like honeybees because they're needed and I'm going to get away from that from a second because I'm just going to ask you the one question, then we'll get to some of that that dirty stuff. What is the deal with bees? Dave Goulson, professor of bumblebees. What is the actual deal with bees? Are we losing bees? Have we got bees? Have we got more than enough bees? Who's bees? Bees? Is one bees? Two bees? Have we got three bees? Too many bees? What's what's the deal? Okay. Well, the answer really depends whether you're talking about honeybees, which are basically domestic animals or wild bees, which look after themselves and make up the vast majority of species. There's 20,000 20, species of bee in the world, What really only one of which is kind of kept on a big scale as a, as a domestic animal, the honeybee. Honeybee numbers have changed a lot over time. And so even giving a simple answer as to what's happening with honeybees is impossible <laughs> because it's not simple. So if you look over the task, last 10 years, honeybee numbers have increased in Britain. Um, if you look over the last 60 years, they've decreased a lot. Uh, so they, they fell following the war for about 50 years, uh, and then they started to climb back up again as lots of hobby beekeepers started keeping bees. Um, if you look globally, honeybee numbers are probably at an all-time high uh, because there are loads more honeybees in China and in Brazil and other parts of South America than there used to be. So the honeybee is not an endangered animal. It's, it's actually one of the commonest insects on the planet. At a rough estimate, a really rough estimate, there might be three trillion honeybees at any one time. Um, so there is no shortage of honeybees. And, and if anyone says they're about to go extinct, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, but they are, it's, it's a bit like chickens and wild birds. They are quite, you know, they are domestic animals which are sort of subject to economic forces if a, if beekeepers can make more money from selling honey or from hiring their hives out to pollinate a crop they'll find a way to to rear more hives and make more money um wild bees on the other hand are overwhelmingly in decline um we've had for example with bumblebees in the uk three species have gone extinct four or five more could easily follow them uh, in the next few decades. Um, uh, so we've seen some really dramatic declines in, in wild bee populations, which, which uh, very broadly follow the pattern for wild insects generally. So there is a problem, but it's confined to wild bees, not domestic honeybees. Um, I guess the problem therein is people's interchangeable use and understanding of the word bee. 
exactly. Very exactly. often you hear people in the supermarket say, oh, I'm going to buy this local honey or English honey because you've got to support the bees. So th- this is where we begin to get into the problem, which is that, you know, everyone knows bees are important, and, and of course they are, um, and it, and pollination is vital to people. You know, we, we, we depend upon loads of our crops wouldn't produce much yield if we didn't have bees and other pollinators. Um, but most pollination is not done by the honeybee. So a common kind of misconception is the honeybees pollinate everything. Um, well, they don't, sadly. There's, it's the actual proportion of our crops pollinated by honeybees is probably somewhere between about 10 and 30%. So it's, the, it's a big chunk for one species, but the majority is done by wild insects. And as I say, honeybees aren't in trouble. So, if, but sadly, a lot of people think that the solution, you know, that it, for example, taking up beekeeping is helping to solve the bee crisis. Um, it's a bit like, and this is sort of perhaps a bit harsh, but it's a bit like saying, "I'm going to keep chickens because I hear the birds are in decline." Yes. I mean, by helping, you know, they're they're you're just adding more domestic animals to the, to the scene, which is not going to help wild birds or wild bees. Um, so, so people should be aware of of that, and and unfortunately, there then there isn't much awareness at all at the moment, and it leads to um, campaigns, often by big organisations like this new Marks and Spencers one that's been recently been announced, where this company, where it's well-meaning, perhaps it's greenwash, but but it's it's you you can tell it was well-intentioned. Yes. They, this campaign where they say they're going to um, put 30 million more bees onto the onto the farms that grow their food um, and, and that this is going to help they, they actually specifically said this is going to help biodiversity well it's not um, uh, sadly and I know they mean well but they should have perhaps done a little more homework. Um, Dave can I stop you there do you think yeah. that actually because when I read this article the reason it caught my eye was it was something like MS releases 30,000 or, or 30 million bees into the wild or something. And it was a real sensationist grabbing headlines. That's not that's not technically what they're doing, but but I noticed it was geographically all over the country. And what I took from the article was that perhaps on a slightly commercially suspicious uh, uh, angle, what it sounds to me like is that they are enabling their local stores to be able to sell local honey. Uh, that's exclusive to MS, probably for a premium, uh, because otherwise, why would you? Why wouldn't you just have you know a ton of hives in the north and the south and the whatever? What's the reason to make them very specifically, strategically? You know, and it was like ten hives on this farm, ten hives on that farm, a hundred hives on this farm, and I was like, well. So my interpretation was it was less. I think the you know the green angle just happened to be ways that the press would help pick up the story because it's topical unfortunately but I took away that actually was probably much more to do with a commercial drive rather than anything else yeah I mean you'd have to ask M&S to and you wouldn't get a straight answer anyway so that wouldn't help to exactly what motivated I don't know but but it's a nice it's a classic example of people sort of tapping into bees and trying to trying to benefit from them you know that i i heard the, the the word bee wash being used by somebody on twitter the other day and it's become a thing you know there are organizations trying trying to appear greener because 
love bees. Everybody like knows that bees are great. And so they say they're going to do something with honeybees and that's going to save the bee. And, you know, and most people think that all sounds perfectly reasonable, but actually it's, 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 it doesn't make any sense, sadly. So, so just to, to kind of complete the story, um, it, the, de- the problem is it can actually be harmful to just have more, bee- more honeybees. Um, so if, for example, you take up beekeeping in your back garden and you've got a little garden and you plop a hive in it, well, your garden isn't going to have enough flowers to support a hive of bees. So they're going to flow out into the landscape and be bringing back all the, all the nectar and pollen from, from up to two or three miles away back to their hive, which means less food for all the wild bees that might have been living in your garden and in your neighborhood beforehand. So unless you can, as well as introducing your hive of bees, plant somewhere in the region of a hectare of flowers, um, then you're actually taking resources out of the landscape. Um, uh, And also, sadly, uh, honeybee hives often have diseases, um, often foreign diseases that we've accidentally carted around the world when we've moved honeybee hives around. Um, so, for example, there's a, there's a funny thing called Nasima serrani, which is a sort of um, single-celled gut parasite of wild bees um, that came from Asia. It's like it's kind of like bee diarrhea. Um, and it, we accidentally brought it with honeybees to Europe, and now it's infecting wild bumblebees, and it sometimes kills the poor things. Um, so diseases often flow out of honeybee hives into the wild pollinators around about. So with the competition and the diseases, actually adding more honeybees and do if that's all you do is is actually making things worse. I think the, that's a very very important point to make. Just last week, I was interviewed for a, um, a, a gardening radio slot. So I was studying with Cornell, with the Master Beekeeper Program at Cornell University in, in Ithaca. And one of the things that struck me was this constant data that was coming in showing a significant increase um, in a variety of honeybee honeybee diseases I use as 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 an easy to understand phrase, but they're carried by honeybees. Um, And of course, the way that honeybees are managed in the boxes that we keep them in for human convenience isn't really... Yeah, especially efficient or certainly efficacious for reducing. <laughs> um, uh, certainly not natural, that's for sure. Doesn't replicate their natural behaviour, uh, and it's not so great for minimising um, uh, disease. But this increase in diseases, the trajectory is phenomenal. It just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And and some of the data that's coming from people in the US, the biologists and, and academics that are looking at what's happening, uh, drifting which is where honeybees you know, go out of one hive and they end up going into another hive. That drifting happens approximately the 1.5 to three mile point. It's not, it's not, you know, like people seem to think it's drifting between hives in an apiary, you know, sort of the next door neighbors. Mm. There's this sort of optimum time that, and they tagged bees. I mean, they, they, for one of the experiments, they tagged a thousand bees by hand to track them, to work out where they were going. And there was this optimum sort of period where either for fatigue or whatever reason, and so the problem is twofold. And this chap asked me last week, uh, you know, what would you say to people, you know, interested in keeping bees or, or taking up beekeeping? And I said, don't get uh, do something in your garden to support bees. That's a much better way to, to if you're interested in getting into beekeeping, you have to ask yourself why, because 
it's a lot of work. Uh, that is something that is not at all really, I think, fully explained. I, 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 I liken it to getting a puppy or a dog, right? It takes a significant amount of work and time and stress. And you have to know what you're doing. I think people are allowed to keep this domestic animal that the problem with all insects, I think you will tell me, well, certainly that's a very broad statement for somebody to make that doesn't have that sort of um, knowledge, but certainly the same for bees. You don't know you've got a problem until you've got the problem. Um, there's very, very few ways of, of, of seeing ahead of time that they might be getting unwell or sick. You only know when it's there in front of you. And by that point, it's too late because you've got 80,000 bees in a beehive that are flying out all over the shop, spreading this thing. You know, I mean, we've got European fowl brood that seems to be regularly reported now, as you said, the Nasima. And of course, we have all of the various different mites as well. So my, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice to give is to, if you want, if you genuinely want to help, um, you know, wildlife or, or bees, or you want to keep bees or you're interested in beekeeping as a hobby is actually to not do it but focus on things that you can plant because i i honestly think there's a big shake-up needed into the hobby beekeeping world to work more closely with scientists because of course it is a grandfather rights sort of backroom cottage industry where it's just people you know i mean i met somebody once who was giving a lecture at a, 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 a flower show who um, very proudly said he never checks his bees because that was a quote-unquote natural way to keep the bees. And I thought, well, that is insane. I mean, if they're riddled with disease, you've no idea. You've spread it everywhere and you're standing up with great pride saying, oh, all those people that, how would you like it if someone took your roof off every 10 days and checked to see if you're all okay? And I thought, well, you decided to keep the bees, right? <laughs> Comes with a level of responsibility, right? Yeah, it should. It should. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, there's, and on the whole, beekeepers are fantastic people, well intentioned, you know, of that, course. Um, and conservationists and beekeepers ought to be kind of working together. And, and often they do and make kind of natural allies. You know, we all want more flowers in the countryside, we all want to see fewer pesticides, better control of diseases, and all these kind of issues. Um, so there's a lot of common ground, um, but also a lot of misconceptions amongst some people about sure. the kind of relative merits of taking up beekeeping versus, I completely agree. I mean, if, if you just fill your garden with bee-friendly flowers, um, you're, doing, you're actually doing something really great for the environment. If you stick a beehive in there, uh, then you might be doing harm. If the diseases continue at the rate that we are seeing them, um, then... I predict that within the next, it's difficult to predict something like this because as we've seen with COVID, the, you know, a viral change can happen, you know, overnight and suddenly we're in a situation that we, we didn't have a plan for. But I, I certainly think if certainly the next five to 10 years, probably sooner, you will find that there will be a lot fewer people keeping bees on a scale that is semi-commercial or commercial. It will force people to only keep them commercially because they can afford the losses in order to manage, you know, thousands of or multiple hundreds of hives to, to make a, you know, a, an income or a living out of it because of the just sheer numbers of diseases that people are having to manage. I suspect a lot of the hobbyists will be sort of fall out. They'll get bored of it or just think, oh, this is too much. It's only so many times you can lose a, you know, a pet or a colony before you think, oh, it's just not worth it anymore because the diseases keep coming. And then, of course, the tragedy with that is it drives you into that thin end of the wedge of commercial farming, which is where the K 
care of the livestock is not necessarily a primary concern because you're dealing with a lot of other factors that are making it a lot more expensive to keep the thing in the first place. Um, so I, yeah, I predict some interesting times ahead for. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think anyone understands why these problems are getting more acute. There's, there's one popular theory is that that. Uh, Pesticide exposure is impairing the immune system of bees, and uh, that that's why we're seeing more and more um, diseases. But uh, the evidence is is not clear cut, certainly. So, so would you suggest that it's it's a, a multitude of things? I mean, certainly we've said, well, there's no way that you can say that killing natural forage and, and stripping areas of natural forage isn't going to impact because you know, you know you're reducing the available food for them so is there an element of you know the way that landscape is managed and your you know farming techniques in addition yeah, to I, I, I think it's i mean it, it's a combination of factors isn't it that uh, you know there's no one driver of wild bee declines and there's no one driver of all these health issues that honeybees are suffering from sure. It's it's a kind of general stress brought on. I, I this is my interpretation anyway, which a lot of people broadly agree with. Um, you know, you, we're just kind of bombarding the poor things with with stresses. You know, there there's not many flowers, so they have to work really hard to find them. Um, they they tend to be they often are forced to feed heavily on on flowering crops because there's not much else. But that means that it's a really unnatural diet for any kind of bee. You know, normally they'd be collecting food from a whole range of different flowers mm. and, you know, feeding for a whole month on nothing but oilseed rape. And then, you know, the next month on something else is 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 not a natural way for bees to live. And I've taken it as worse, the sort of North American system where they transport the bees around from one crop to the next yeah. to a big lorry. Um, you know, those poor bees there. I mean, imagine, you know, if you ate sardines for a month and then chocolate for a month and then runner beans for a month, you'd probably feel pretty bloody awful, you know, and it's hardly surprising that these, that's one of the things they have to put up with. And then when they do find flowers, particularly flowering crops, they've obviously got lots of pesticides on them. So that probably doesn't help. They've got all these foreign diseases they're trying to cope with that we've accidentally from Asia and other places. And so put it all together. And, you know, if you're, if you're, if you've, infected with something nasty and being gently poisoned and starved all at the same time <laughs> you know yeah. you'd be surprised if either honeybee colonies die or wild bees like bumblebees don't thrive poor things yeah sure and of course in your the scenario you give um the example you give there of the american system of moving and they literally move from you know city to city along the coast of the states chasing different crops from almonds to apples to uh, 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 oranges, I think. Is there an orange crop in the States? I think there is. Yeah, um, citrus down in Florida is a, is a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, then, and then they get to the end of the season, so they've spent there's no rest period. The colony is just the demand is to keep going, 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 going on this weird diet, like you say. And then there's hundreds or thousands, but you know, huge percentages of the total number that are being carried that die. That get to the end and there's these you know commercial beekeepers scratching their heads going oh why are they all <laughs> why are they, dying? Uh, are they dying? it's it shouldn't be such a surprise should it but uh, yeah the the americans t take industrial beekeeping to a whole new level let's get back to bumblebees and um, because they're cute and fuzzy and lovely i've got loads of minor bees i love that this time of the year is amazing because the lawn is alive um 
and I have a question for you, Dave, about my minor bees. They oh. are minor bees, aren't they? The little grey and black bees that burrow in yeah. the ground. There are, if they're in the ground, then there'll be some kind of mining bee, but that's that's not a very, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a natural name for a hundred different species, so it doesn't narrow it down very much. Wow, I'm excited. Um, so anyway, the, the lawn's alive with the, all of these little grey and black, fuzzy, cute little bees emerging, I guess. from. Uh, uh, so how big are they? Just, sorry, I'm trying to work out what they might be. Uh, about the size of my little fingernail, maybe, you know, relatively small, cute and fuzzy. They're quite a bit smaller than a honeybee then. Yes, yes. Okay, that doesn't help narrow it down terribly much. Oh, I was sorry. to say they were a little bit bigger than a honeybee, in which case I could have said that they're probably ashy mining bees. But uh, okay, No, they're not bigger than a honeybee, they're definitely smaller. But then having said that, if they're young, would they be smaller? No, they don't get bigger once they're adults. Right. Well, then um, it's not them. So <laughs> no, no, mining. We'll stick with mining bees. That's as good as we can do. OK, fine. So there are bees that are mining in my garden. Uh, but I have a question because this time of the year, the carpet is alive. There's so much movement. They're all coming out. You can see all of the little holes that they're coming out of. Where do they go? Because the, the lawn doesn't do that all year round. So yeah. they obviously don't go back in and live there. They go off somewhere else. Where do they go, Dave? They're in your lawn the whole time. They're, they're not. They're, but they're not as adults. So my, solitary bees, we should just explain very briefly, solitary bees, for those who are unaware, make up the large majority of bee species, but they, they don't live in a hive, they don't live in a nest with a queen and workers. They're just female bees make a nest on their own. Uh, and just same as most insects do, of course, most insects are solitary. And in the UK, we've got um, of, of our about 270 species of bee, about 200, nearly 250 of them are solitary. So most bees are solitary. Um, anyway, so most of them have one generation a year. Um, so um, these ones in your lawn, they'll be busy making new, new burrows into the ground and filling them with pollen, laying eggs. And the males spend the whole day just flying around, grabbing any female they can get their hands. Mm -hmm. um, and once they've laid their eggs, um, the, the, they all die off. Um, but the grubs will be in those burrows in your lawn all year until they hatch as adults next spring. So they're always wow. there and don't see them. So they're active time. So when they've... I have more questions. So when they... <laughs> When they are, I mean, I'm looking out my window here and they are, I mean, they are absolutely everywhere out there. Uh, it is amazing. But what I'm confused about is why I only see this mass activity in the spring. So I guess this is the sort of emerging mating season. So that's why there's lots of activity. They're busy getting the eggs packed down. They'll stay there then as grubs till next spring. But once yeah. they've done that, they go off and live a life pollinating. They just, they just die. They only uh, so bees. So what's the point? <laughs> Why does that have to be a point? I mean, that's this is what insects do. Most insects, the adults are quite short lived. You know, those death watch beetles. Telling me earlier, they don't even eat. Um, they 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 spend ten years as a larvae growing. the The adult lives for a, a week or two um, and doesn't feed. Uh, so what just, purpose does it have? What? Why did? Why did it evolve? Its purpose is to mate and produce offspring. I mean, that's, that's what evolution is all about. 
<laughs> I want to come back as a beetle, Dave. You produce more offspring than than the other beetles or bees or whatever, then you're an evolutionary success. That's that's what it boils down to. It doesn't matter how long you live. Um, it's how many offspring you have is the. You know, that's that's fascinating because I didn't know that existed. Like just the, literally just the survival of because because a lot of insects do something for life you know they pollinate something and so that's how you get more flowers or plants or whatever um or uh because of course our earliest pollinators before flying insects were beetles right crawling over you know pollen and stuff and moving pollen around or whatever uh, and that's how we get fruit and cherries and whatever because of that and some of them i guess will, are food for birds so there's that sort of ecological food chain you know um but to literally just emerge from your burrow mate lay eggs and then die i mean that's almost i mean what on earth it's almost pointless isn't it i don't feel so bad if i'm treading one now i mean it's like your mere existence is to almost not exist but then that, that, that's you could say the same about most life on earth i mean it doesn't does it need to have a a, a reason you can under, understand to exist or you know is it just free to go about doing its own thing <laughs> what well, well, Sure, I, I guess so. View it from a, a sort of you know, anthropogenic perspective. Um, they're just li little automatons going about their their business, and uh, you just think it would have a life to do something, right? That had a purpose rather than literally just because you almost think, well, what's the point in it existing if it's going to make more young to do what? To make more young to make more young to so it just exists yeah, for. Yeah. That's, that's, no that's what life does this. it's not like they have their babies and then they decide they're going to take up a hobby and you know okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how it works these are insects you know <laughs> well at least with like some fish you know the existence of the fish creates the coral right and the existence of the conversely also sometimes the existence of the coral creates the fish and what it's a there's a sort of ecological infrastructure i guess you know it's knitted together it's, it's the same it's the same with insects and, and all life really you know ecosystems are made of thousands of interacting species and often the interactions are, are you know not all that obvious or not well understood but uh you know you've you've got you've got i mean if you look at a your lawn a bit later in the year when you you'll have clovers flowering probably in your lawn yeah clovers have got bacteria in their roots that help them fix nitrogen from the air which help them produce proteins which means that they can put more amino acids into their pollen which means they're more attractive to bumblebees uh, which pollinate the clover and collect the the protein rich pollen that was aided by those bacteria sure. and the bees themselves pollinate other crops, they're food for badgers, and they have all sorts of parasites, dozens of species of parasites that live on them, which are all, all have their own kind of life cycles that are all kind of kind of cool. So there's just it's all interconnected. You know, you can follow from one species to the next with the way they all interact with one another. And uh, you know, there's nobody designed it. It's just just evolved over well, I can tell it wasn't designed. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I mean, and it's really complicated. And I mean, one of the sort of interesting things here is, you know, does it matter how much diversity you have? You know, do we need all these things? Um, um, and actually, there, there's a, there's a, there was a. Robert Winston was on on radio a couple of years ago, and for some strange reason, they asked him about this. Uh, the, it was in 2017 when this German study about insect declines had, had come out, and. Um, 
so for some reason, instead of asking him about things he knows about, they asked him about, you know, this decline of insects. And he, he said on national radio, well, there are lots of species of insect we don't really need, um, which seemed like a bit of a sort of um, a foolish throwaway remark, really, because we don't really know which ones we need and which ones we don't need, because we don't really understand their all, you know, how they all interact. Um, mm. what, what we do know is that, for example, um, you get a more reliable pollination of your crop if you've got lots of different species of pollinator. Um, it's less like, you know, if you rely entirely on, say, honeybees and anything happens to your honeybees or the weather isn't particularly good and honeybees are slightly fair weather foragers, yes. your crop doesn't get pollinated well. But if you've got dozens of different species of pollinator, there's always one that, that likes the conditions, the weather or whatever, um, mm. or is having a good year. So it's hard to say, you know, how many species of bee you need. Probably we could lose some of them and not really notice. But at some oh, point... Those minor bees could be on that list. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting... There's a guy called Paul Ehrlich, who's an American kind of biologist, been around a long time now. Um, and he, he kind of put it like this, that, you know... A, a, a plane has thousands of rivets that hold it together and you could probably pull a few rivets out of the plane <laughs> and still fly. But if, if every day you pulled a few more rivets out of the plane and threw them away, at some point the wing is going to fall off when you're in yes. the You know, it's, it's going to be a catastrophe. Yep. But knowing exactly when that point is, is, is really hard to predict. And it's the same with losing species. We are losing species now. And we, you know, the, the world is still trundling on, but, but will it keep trundling on if we keep, losing biodiversity sure uh, maybe at some point it won't i met a few people well regularly i meet a few people and i have a very similar thought about them actually dave i'll be honest you know, <laughs> our, our own species could do with a bit of a darwinistic cull uh yeah i don't think i mean you know yes yes it sounds <laughs> a little harsh and when it gets personal um you're on tricky territory but but it's, there's too many people on the planet, really, and that, that's that is a fundamental part of the problem. Some people find that a really offensive thing to say. I don't know why. I mean, it's just biology. Uh, I, yeah, I think so. I think uh, yeah. Um, anyway, listen. Five bumblebee facts. Do you reckon you could do that? I mean, I made five up. Uh, are you seem like the sort of person that could give me fifty-five, to be honest. But we haven't got much time left now, so um, I thought it'd be interesting to ask. Professor Bumblebee, I'm so sorry, Dave. <laughs> um, um, what um, some unusual facts? This th I'll tell you where it stemmed from, and this might set you off. <clears throat> Lovely Jill Perkins. Do you know Jill Perkins? Yeah, I do indeed. What an adorable woman. So Jill Perkins from the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. I listened to her speak once. This is edited, by the way, Dave. So if you need me to edit this out, <laughs> that's fine. She said, we import 80,000 boxes of bumblebees every year into this country in order to pollinate our tomato crops, our commercial tomato crops, because um, we don't have enough wild pollinators in this country to do it. And then because of biosecurity reasons, they're killed or left to die or whatever. And then the following year, we import another 80,000 boxes. And I was, I mean, my, I ruined my head for the rest of the week. It just kept, I was trying to get my head around that. So I thought, I wonder if Dave's got any unusual bumblebee facts that he could share with us. Oh, it's always really, uh, my mind has a tendency to go blank when people say things like this. But let me, I've got, I can think of a few, um, whether we'll get to five, I don't know. Um, 
So um, bumblebees are one of the only insects that can live their entire life cycle in the Arctic Circle and that can fly when the air temperature is below freezing. Wow. Um, the species Bombus polaris, which um, um, lives, you know, way up in the tundra in, uh, in the far, far north where it's bloody freezing. Um, but because they're big and furry, they can, they can keep warm. And, they, uh, and so my second related fact, this is cheating slightly, is that um, bumblebees are warm-blooded, basically. So, so I was taught that insects are cold-blooded at school um, and that only mammals and birds are warm-blooded. You know, we have a regulated, stable body temperature, but an insect's their body temperature just follows the, the sort of ambient air temperature. But that's not true of bumblebees. They, they produce heat from their flight muscles internally and uh, use it to... to keep themselves warm. So those Bombus polaris, they can fly around when it's minus five, um, but they're internal. If you were to measure the temperature inside the bee, it would be about 30 degrees centigrade. So 35 degrees warmer than the air around them, which is- A bit like having a really big, good coat on when you're gardening, you sort of generate your own- Exactly, exactly. So, so I've, I'm definitely cheating now. Third related fact, um, a bumblebee flaps her wings about 200 times a second to stay in the air, which is where the heat comes from, because they're basically, you know, you're wearing a furry coat while flapping your, flap, try flapping your arms 200 times a second and you get, get pretty hot, I guess. I will. That sounds like an Instagram live video. <laughs> <laughs> what else? So I, this again, slightly related, but that comes at a huge cost, that flapping, because it uses loads of energy to keep warm when it's freezing cold. Sure. And so a, a bumblebee is only ever about 40 minutes from starvation, from the point where they, they've run out of energy and they, then they go cold and they can't fly and then they're in big trouble. Um, and wow. so a running person uh, burns the calories in a Mars bar in about, in about an hour of running. Other chocolate bars are available, Dave. We don't have sponsorship. Indeed, indeed they are. They are. Um, if you were a man-sized bumblebee, you'd burn the calories in the Mars bar in about 30 seconds. So it just no. it tons of sugar to keep them in the air, which is why they spend their life eating flowers. But they're they're kind of, you know, always they're kind of living their whole life on a on a knife edge between starvation and, you know, uh, being full. Um what I would let one more, one more. Okay. Got oh two more. Um, oh, wow! Look at they're coming thick and fast now. <laughs> may, so male bumblebees can't sting. Not everybody knows this. Um, if you can tell which ones are the males, you can pick them off flowers with your hands. Um, they get little yellow fluffy faces, um, but not always. So, and if you get the wrong one, it'll hurt. So it's it's definitely one to you know. Uh, it comes with a warning if you want to try that out. Um, uh, and of course, it's because the sting evolved from the egg-laying tube of a female, uh, the ancestor of the female bee. And of course, males don't have eggs, so they don't have a sting. And then uh, what else have we got? And cuckoo bees, got to be worth a mention. There are some yeah. bumblebees and other types of bee too, but there are some bumblebees which have this weird life cycle. They've become parasites on other bumblebees. So the, the, the female cuckoo bee comes out of hibernation a bit late. Um, and instead of building her own nest, she flies around looking for a, a host's nest. And she goes in and murders the queen and enslaves her offspring as her uh, to, to look after her her young. And the, so the, the the workers of the original queen 
find their their mum's been murdered and and they don't really have much choice but to just carry on looking after the the offspring of this uh this the cuckoo kind of intruder um so it's kind of kind of an interesting and uh, slightly sinister life cycle we'll add them to the list of those minor bees are the ones we can knock off i reckon dave <laughs> Yeah, but they're cool, aren't they? I mean, yeah, you're right. We probably could do without them. But wouldn't the world be a bit less bit less rich if we didn't have these creatures? Oh, well, or well, less aggressive. It depends how you look at it. <laughs> but we, we have come sort of to the end of the podcast. So before we finish and wrap up, um, this is normally the point where we do album of the month and book of the month. <laughs> and uh, what... Um, we briefly spoke and you said that you were going to go for book of the month. You've got a book of the month. Is it your own book, Dave? Are you going to use it? No, that would be cheeky, wouldn't it? I mean, I could, I could, but I won't do that. (laughs) You didn't give me time to go and get the book. That's uh, okay. Because this, we don't, uh, this, this viewing bit is only for us. The, um, the book I'm currently reading is really interesting. It's called the book of trespass. Um, The slightly embarrassing thing is, I'm, I think I'm not sure, I'm 100% sure who the author is. I think he's Nick Hayes. But anyway, it's the book of trespass, and it's it's really interesting about our, you know, the fact that we can't access most of the land, and that we're we're in danger of being arrested if we stray from a very small proportion of the countryside that we're allowed to go onto, and the history of how that came about, and how ah. it used to be nearly all common land, and we've been sort of, um, you know, dis, sort of turfed off our heritage which is kind of interesting it makes you feel quite angry actually <laughs> yeah. it, it is nick hayes i just had a quick look for you it's a very there interesting thing to point out and very topical because just this last week my pa cap she does lots of um open walking and, and whatever and she brought in her walking maps the other day and she was looking for somewhere to get lost so she could orient uh, orientate with her map um uh, she said, but there's just nowhere. She can't really do it in woodland because the trees are in the way. Uh, so she was looking for sort of open access land. And obviously, you know, moorland and heatherland, you get a lot of that. She said, but there's just nothing around here. It's all private. There's loads of big bits of land, but they're all a certain colour on the map and you can't go in there. They're all private. So it's a real a real thing. Yeah. You, yeah. And it, the, what I mean, we don't even question it, do we? We just kind of accept that, you know, rich people own most of the country. And uh, yeah. And we just have to stick to the footpaths and the roads. But it, it uh, I hadn't fully appreciated, but most of it was common land. And then it, these enclosures took place in what well, started with William the Conqueror, but going sure. right to the 18th century, where basically the, the, the peasants that worked the land were thrown off and the land was just given to somebody, some rich guy, um, sure. who had links to the king or whatever. And uh, we've not been allowed back on ever since, which... Uh, I think it's a bit naughty, really. Well, that sort of points to a lot of the laws that we uh, are tied by that are old and antiquated and draconian and incredibly out of date, but nobody seems to have done a thing about them. And yet they shape the way that we can and can't do things in life generally. Yeah, um, good book of the month. I like that. It's available on Amazon. I've seen it here. So I'll, uh, I'll drop that in the show no, notes don't, as well. Don't not Amazon, please. Oh, oh, go for it, Dave. I love it. You can get it from anywhere yeah, you just, want. Just, just, you can get exactly. Other, other bookshops are available. And, uh, and they you- are now. Yes, I've, I reverted. I spoke a little while back about the fact that we're going to have to start saying you can get it from Amazon or somewhere because there were very few places I could find online that were still open and online. I'm sure there were if you if I searched them properly. But now, yes, you can go back to your local bookstore now and get out. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Get out um, 
My album of the month is uh, by Kate Rusby or Rusby. I don't know how she says her name. It's Underneath the Stars. It's not a new album. None of the albums are that I share. Um, it's this sort of time of the year when it gets warmer outside. You can see it's lighter for longer. You can spend a lot more time outside. And uh, hopefully, just like the last couple of evenings, into the evening a little bit as well. And I, one of my favourite things to do, sometimes you have to put a jacket on, it's a little bit chilly, is walk around the garden just as it sort of gets a little bit, you know, as the sun comes down and that low light sort of kisses areas of the you know the garden and stuff and I walk around with the dog sometimes with a cup of tea uh, and I often sort of reflect and think about the people that aren't here anymore but that helped shape my life to get to where I am the fact that I can enjoy the garden that I've got and enjoy the outside spaces and the people that have helped me through my life to get to you know where I am I often think about my grandma when I'm in the garden because obviously she hugely influenced my my gardening and love of gardening uh, and it's quite nice sometimes just to sit outside and have a little reflect, not in a sort of melancholic way. You can make it melancholic if you want. You can have a melancholy evening. <laughs> but it's quite nice to have a sort of bit of sort of calming, sort of low music. Uh, and underneath the stars is very uh, good for that sort of evening, uh, nice warm, balmy evening, just to remind you that um, I think it's sometimes good to reflect on, you know, not forgetting the people that formulated who you are uh, and helped get you to the time and space that you are right now. So that's my album of the month this month. That brings us to the end of not only this episode of the podcast day, but this short second series, because we did six episodes with a guest co-host. You're the last one, Dave. Um, last I, dare I, I dare say you're one of the best as well. Look at that. Oh, that's we'll, we'll see what happens with, uh, with the listening figures. Uh, I might be wrong. Uh, <laughs> so listen, if people want to... <laughs> If people want to know more or they haven't had enough Dave Dawson in their life, where can they find you? Are you on social media? Have you got a website? I'm on Twitter. I'm on YouTube. I've got lots of videos on YouTube about how to make your garden more insect friendly and on Great. the hotels and hoverfly lagoons and, and the like. And of course, in all good bookshops. Uh, and what, what's your Twitter handle? Do you know? Uh, it's just at Dave Dawson. Easy. Look at that. What more or little... Could you want? Nice and simple. Um, so thanks for the book of the month. It's been brilliant. Uh, don't forget that at the end of this series now is your last opportunity to donate to our community garden project. So you can go to ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash roots, coffee dot, uh, no, hang on, ko-fi.com forward slash roots. That's it. I never, this thing is terrible. Whoever came up with this coffee thing is nuts. It's a lovely idea, but it's so difficult to explain. Um, and you can donate however much you want to afford. We're pooling all of that money together. Um, we're currently about a couple of hundred quid, and then we're going to donate that to a couple of different community garden projects. And I think probably based on what we've spoken about today, I think we'll definitely go towards uh, either some buying some seeds or something like that, or some plants that are pollinator friendly to help those community garden projects do their bit as well. So this is the last in the series. Um, thank you very much for being with me through this. It's been a real joy. Series three starts very shortly. Uh, and the new guest, permanent guest uh, host is Kathy Slack. And lovely Kathy will be joining me for a new weekly series three with uh, celebrity special guests every single week. So join me very shortly. Make sure you're on social media at that Jez Rose uh, and searching for Roots, Wings and other things. Make sure you subscribe. And if you love the series, don't forget to tell other people about it and leave a review as well. Dave Gawson, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Dave. <laughs>